Hello, bonjour and ahoy. I'm Roger Hilton, media presenter at GlobeSec, and welcome back to Security Hooligans, a podcast about modernizing NATO, powered by the NATO 2030 Global Fellows. Today, we talk about NATO-EU cooperation. Joining us for the ruckus is Bordeaux's own bad boy, Arthur de Lederke, project manager at Rasmussen Global and a non-resident fellow at the Institute for Security Policy at Keele University, coming to us live from Brussels. And of course, we have the big boss, Savannah Link, program advisor from Washington. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Roger. It's good to be on the show. Hi, Savannah. Thanks for having us, Roger. Oh, guys, I could, I could barely sleep knowing we were going to ruckus today. How's everybody doing? Excited to be having this discussion with you guys today. Speaking about challenging topics, guys, it is insanely hot outside. Savannah, <laughs> you are from Texas. How do we deal with this? How do we stay cool in these weather? Right. Well, I, I guess I'm probably not the person to ask because I'm I'm a Texan, so I'm just used to this heat. And in fact, I'm I'm a little chilled right now. I'm wearing a sweater. So I say there's nothing a little sweet tea can't fix, but uh, probably not going to be the most helpful for you Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Rosé, definitely on my end. <laughs> well, it's such a controversial subject, but we'll have to bring that up for the, the Washington trip. But on my end, guys, I'm back from holiday. So shout out to Minnie Hilton for getting me up Mount Pico. And most importantly, the Montreal Canadiens took two Slovaks in the first round of the NHL draft, which was mega dobre. So looking forward to that. So guys, speaking of hot topics, uh, Savannah, you mentioned it already, NATO-EU cooperation. Uh, it's always a good idea to have a little backup, right? Like with how dangerous those streets are right now. Increasingly, NATO is ganging up with the EU to ensure mission success. So basically, guys, NATO was founded in 1949, and the precursor to the EU, European Coal and Steel Community, was established in 1952. The relationship has grown in leaps by leaps and bounds by then, which now includes 74 points of cooperation. So Arthur, for all of our listeners out there, like, why don't you just start us off and outline the existing relationship between NATO and the EU? Sure. Um, so just after the European coal and steel community that you mentioned, Roger, we actually had the European community. And to be fair, security and defense matters didn't really come up on uh, this organization's agenda until the mid-90s. Um, and it was then that a lot of the um, initial uh, rivalry, or at least discussions around how the two organizations should coordinate uh, really appeared. And we had uh, you know, US, then US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright um, uh, kind of uh, really insist on the fact that, you, that Europe should not de-link from NATO on defense matters. Um, I think since then, we've, we've really come a long way and we've seen relations between the two institutionalized, mostly in the early 2000s, building on those steps that I mentioned during the 1990s. Um, we, what we've seen is, is, is real momentum um, which sometimes has been hampered, impeded by, you know, enduring national rivalries. Um, there's something called the participation problem between Turkey and Cyprus. Um, obviously, political reservations or, or different uh, 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 political objectives. And here I'm thinking of, you know, France's role in pushing uh, the strategic autonomy or at least the feeling that Europe should be doing more for itself, by itself, in terms of security and defense. But overall, I think it's safe to say that the two, uh, NATO and EU, today share many of the same members, and this is likely to be even more true in coming months, um, with Finland and Sweden, Sweden having applied to join, but we can get back to that later. Um, and of course, with you know, shared strategic interests and many of the same or very similar challenges and threats. 
Well, Arthur, thanks so much for getting us out there on your opening intervention. You raised a lot of great points, uh, you know, the big word rivalry, which we'll turn back to. But let's pivot across the Atlantic now to Washington. So, you know, again, Savannah, you're an American. What's the view in Washington or across the U.S. about, you know, NATO and the EU working together? Is it does it make sense off the off the bat for everyone or is it still a complicated problem for everybody? Sure. Thanks both uh, to you, Roger and Arthur, uh, for teeing us up here. And I want to kind of expand outside of a, a Washington, D.C. perspective and more so a general American perspective, because those, I think, are two very different things that we need to distinguish between. You know, I think what's important to recognize is that there's a general uh, mystique, I, I really think, behind, you know, the nuances of NATO and EU and what the differences are. And, uh, you know, this is not to say that people are not, uh, you know, savvy enough to determine, but but I think that in our headlines, in our conversations, unless you're a policy wonk or really focusing in on this, they kind of blend together. And so what I think is the goal of something like this podcast is to highlight our, of course, wonderful fellows and experts that we have and hear from their perspective, but also kind of take a moment to break down some of these topics for people in a more digestible way. And I think that understanding the, you know, the, the regular political consultations of between NATO and the EU, the cooperation, there's a natural flow um, of, of collaboration that's there. But what I think is important to recognize from an American perspective is that perhaps there's a need to uh, really identify more closely, not only the differences, but also the, the shared responsibilities. I think if we look to kind of the, the more modern elements and examples, not only was there cooperation between NATO and the EU on, let's say, the issues of tackling COVID, that was a, an approach from a lot of multilateral institutions around the world. So I think the biggest thing is for Americans to understand there are certainly a lot of overlapping common interests. And so because of that, there is a natural confusion, I think, between the roles of NATO and the EU. But I think through this conversation and just understanding, you know, more of the, the focal points between the two, you can have that great collaboration and cooperation and relationship, but also understand there are really distinct roles in Europe. Savannah, I've never heard anybody describe the relationship between NATO and EU as mystique. So we'll have to get you a copyright patent on that. Um, and thank you so much for sort of decluttering the confusion that goes about it. Uh, as we move on to the next subject, Arthur, I mean, quick take from you here. I mean, so based on what Savannah said, do you think that the perception that there is a rivalry between NATO and the EU is justified? I mean, obviously, you know, the strategic compass, which is the uh, egalitarian document to the strategic concept, which is published by the European Union uh, Ex External Action Service. There is PESCO in the works over here on the continent. So, I mean, yeah, what do you think here? Is it justified or not? Or it presupposed rivalry between NATO and the EU? Well, to be honest, Roger, I think it's fairly understandable that each organization would want to, you know, legitimately increase its mandate or, or ensure um, it keeps, uh, you know, its, its shares of the security and defense masses agenda close to its chest. So, so in a sense, I think the, the, the rivalry has been largely, is now outdated, to be frank. Um, I think for a long time, and that was particularly true during the Cold War. Um, NATO was the uh, obvious uh, you know, territorial defense uh, organization, and the EU being more of a political and economic entity. Um, but now what we see in the recent strategic concept for NATO and the strategic compass for the EU is that both have really acknowledged the key uh, unique role and, and partner that the one represents for the other. Um, I think uh, talk of, of, you know, duplication and making sure that the two organizations don't overlap is, 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 has, has done, gone down radically. 
um, over the last few years. And um, we see how the EU brings a lot to the table in dealing with the crisis. I mean, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, for instance, in terms of the economic sanctions it can bring to the table, or in its ability to legislate, for instance, in the field of um, cybersecurity or the digital um, arena. Um, and I think, again, uh, uh, looking ahead, it's fair to say that uh, I think it makes sense for the European Union to be a strong pillar of transatlantic security and to stay um, within, you know, with, with, with the, the European states of NATO to stay within NATO and make sure that they um, beef up their capabilities and their ability to shore up the alliance. Um, but I do also think that uh, with the 2024 elections in the US in mind and a possible change of administration, um, as well as you know the country's continued commitment of uh, a pivot to Asia, that it does make sense for the EU to be looking at its own frameworks, its tools, its capabilities, um, again, to contribute to NATO's European leg, but also to complement it, ensuring that it has the option to act alone, if necessary, to defend interests that might not always align with the alliance. Uh, well, Arthur, when you're not a bad boy in Bordeaux, I think uh, I've described you as a mythbuster. I mean, that was an outstanding way of, of, you know, sort of really outlining concretely how they complement each other. And for everybody listening right now, I'm just looking at the new NATO strategic concept, paragraph 43, where the EU is described as a unique and essential partner. And just building on what you said, Arthur, it also says NATO recognizes the value of a stronger and more capable European defense that contributes positively to global security. So, you know, well done for helping us on that issue. And let's get going on the next the, the next one. You know, in preparation for the podcast, uh, I was looking at NATO-EU rivalry. Arthur, you mentioned the word again, rivalry, but I do think uh, on a light note that there is a resident rivalry. For all of our listeners out there who might not know this, former European Commission President uh, Jean-Claude Juncker never had a swanky residence, uh, which is unlike the NATO sec gen. But listen to this. He told uh, when he was president, the German tabloid built, and I quote, the NATO secretary general, on the other hand, lives in a stately home and invites us there sometimes when we need a rest. The biggest problem was that I couldn't invite anyone home. I can't talk to official visitors sitting on my bed. So I think that's a, a cute story uh, for how NATO and EU work together. Uh, moving on here uh, onto something a little bit more serious, Arthur. Uh, recently, NATO Secretary Stoltenberg spoke to members of the EU Parliament and really gave an impassioned speech about the different currencies that the West and Ukraine are paying. So as you know, uh, the Secretary General is visiting a lot more of EU institutions now. His stop earlier this week wasn't the first. So what do you make of this specific visit, Arthur? And in the long term of things, what do you make of the more frequent visits to the Berlamont and other European institutions by Stoltenberg? Yeah, thanks for that, Roger. Listen, I think I think it was a very powerful message to see um, both in terms of symbol, but also in terms of content to see the Secretary General address a joint meeting of the European Parliament's Committee on Foreign Affairs and the Subcommittee on Security and Defense. Um, he was, you know, he made a very impassioned, eloquent speech um, asking for or pleading to a certain extent for more European action in supporting Ukraine. And I think this sentence in particular, um, you know, was, was, was very uh, uh, moving. He said, the price we pay as the European Union, as NATO, is the price we can measure in currency in money. The price Ukrainians pay is measured in lives lost every day. And I think really that was intended to, you know, encourage or even jolt um, other parliamentarians listening to him um, to make sure that we have the resolve at the European Union level, the unity in the face of the Russian aggressor um, 
and, and to push, again, for more action, another sanctions package, greater solidarity with, you know, taking in additional Ukrainian refugees if needed, or putting the, the, the measures in place to uh, uh, support Ukraine's candidacy status um, for the European Union. I think, you know, his message was really intended to, to again, be a kind of electric shock to, to, to the audience. And, you know, there, there are things that I think he was right in doing that. We're still waiting to see, for instance, uh, how the 9 billion euro loan the EU has promised, how that will really materialize. Um, and, you know, we're seeing also very, very disappointing actions, not to say, you know, I won't go into further comment on this, but we saw Hungary's top diplomat, the foreign minister, visit Moscow a few days ago to negotiate gas supplies, despite an EU bid to cut deliveries or, you know, to kind of at least reduce energy dependencies on Russia. So, you know, I think his message was timely. It was it was powerful. And hopefully um, um, it will kind of ensure that moving forward, the EU, obviously, along with its NATO partner, really continue to demonstrate the, the grit and, and, and the, the, the toughness that's needed to deal with an actor like Russia. No, I mean, Arthur, it was definitely, you know, he really went in and, you know, your description of it being an electric shock or a jolt to the EU was really powerful. I mean, some of the big hits there about, uh, you know, when referencing Bucha and more, and I quote, it violates my understanding of what is decent behavior. And, you know, he even made a very compelling case about even if you don't support Ukraine on a moral level, it's in your own selfish interest to do so for security reasons. So, I mean, Savannah, did you get a chance to take to take in the speech or any input on, uh, you know, the SecGen's address to the EU parliament? Yeah, well, first, I want to back up a little bit and, and touch on something, Arthur, that you bring up in this kind of outdated rivalry. And I completely agree with this idea. But I also think having a little... Um, you know, healthy competition is is not a bad thing if it delivers results. And unfortunately, we're just not seeing that in this sense. So I think in terms of just first a general understanding of NATO and the EU, I think that this, like you said, Arthur, this timely conversation and jolt that the Secretary General shared is, is something that I mean, honestly, I think it was even a, a delayed. I, I wish this had happened a little bit earlier, but I think coming off of the heels of the new strategic concept and and this idea of renewed commitment of, you know, here's where we are, here's what we can do, um, and, and to shake things up a bit is needed. What I will say is something that I think is not going to be a surprise to anyone listening, but, you know, there are there are criticisms of uh, follow through or direct action and, and putting kind of, you know, your, your money where your mouth is and saying, you know, here's where we are, here's what we're going to do and not delaying because this this sentiment, this idea of, you know, paying in lives is, is exactly true. And I think that, you know, we've seen the headlines, we've seen this conversation continue day in and day out where, you know, it, it, unfortunately, it it moves to the back of people's minds. And I think that this was kind of a wake up call to shake people awake, you know, to, to say that this is what's going to happen. And Ukraine can count on NATO support for as long as it takes. And having this conversation you know, with this uh, joint meeting with the European Parliament's Committee on Foreign Affairs, the Subcommittee on Security and Defense, you know, having this in that public setting is, I think, almost, you know, a a way to pressure and make sure that the EU is right there in lockstep with them, because uh, I think it's going to be really important to continue to push away that rivalry, to push forward and collaboration, and just to give results, to make things happen. And so I think having that public sentiment and, and not being diplomatic, not beating around the bush, saying exactly what is needed and what's the reality is is something that I think will, uh, you know, continue to move the needle. And that's what we really need to see. All right. Well, great. I mean, as we said, I really encourage all of our listeners to check out the the speech. It, it, was, it was really, really passionate. And you could tell he was speaking from the heart. So, you know, just great efforts all around. 
Uh, Arthur, let's move on to sort of the leadership right now in the EU. Since the beginning of July, the Czech Republic took over the EU presidency. Uh, you and, you know, former Globesec alumni Alex Martin co-authored a great par uh, primer for Globesec on the subject. Obviously, you still have this, conf this hot conflict raging in the east of the continent. So listen, with Prague in charge for the next six months, what does their agenda mean for NATO and EU cooperation in your expert opinion? I think first, um, I think it's particularly welcome that we have a central European country at the helm of the EU um, in this difficult time for our, for our continent, for Ukraine, you know, for, for all uh, freedom and demo democracy loving countries around the world. Um, as a Frenchman, I'll allow myself to say this, but I was disappointed at some of the fence sitting or at least, you know, kind of the inconclusive uh, efforts and support that France has offered Ukraine, notably in terms of weapons delivery. But the Fiala administration, so the, 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 you know, the current uh, prime minister, has taken a leading role in supporting Kiev um, from the very outset of the conflict, both in delivering significant amounts of weaponry. Um, you know, we've seen tanks, helicopters, rocket systems headed to Ukraine, um, but also in offering to lead the NATO battle group in Slovakia, which uh, obviously is a country on, you know, bordering Ukraine, so on the very front lines. Uh, of the conflict. And Fiala was also among the, the first leaders with his Polish and Slovenian counterparts to travel to Kiev to meet President Zelensky, um, to, to also you know, open up his countries to hosting over 400,000 uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees fleeing the war. Um, so, so, you know, really, I think it's, it's a particularly uh, important that we have such a voice um, representing the EU currently. Um, the fact that the presidency's motto is Europe as a task, uh, which is, you know, for, for our audience today, a, a tribute to the title of a speech made by former President Havel back in 1996. I think it's very symbolic in this respect. President Havel was a true architect of the country's EU and NATO membership. And I think that speaks volumes to um, the effort and the political uh, push that will go towards strengthening EU-NATO cooperation during the six-month Czech presidency. The Czech Republic has been very active um, on the defense front in, in, in recent months, even aside from the war, just going through a more general overhaul of their armed forces and of, uh, of uh, the budget allocated to this sector, etc. So EU-NATO collaboration is sure to be a priority of the presidency. Uh, the presidency program explicitly highlights this ambition. And, you know, the statements we've seen coming out of Foreign Minister Jan Lipovsky and uh, Defence Minister Jana Chernochova uh, no later than the 8th of July, if I'm not mistaken, so that was you know, a few weeks ago, I think is ample evidence that we can expect more on this front. Well, Arthur, I mean, talk about a remix going back with Václav Havel. I mean, thanks so much for that reference and also very high marks on your Slovak-Czech pronunciation, uh, you know, here in Bratislava, you know, big ones on that. Staying on the continent, Arthur, uh, you know, as we spoke in our pre-call here a little bit, no, it's no big surprise. Finland and Sweden are joining. You have so many of the allies who've already ratified it from a parliamentary level. But at the same time, you know, you have less EU states in the, you know, you have less EU members who uh, are not part of NATO anymore. So moving forward, uh, you know, what does this mean for the barrel of you have for countries like Ireland, Malta, Cyprus, and Austria, not in NATO? as well as a lot of the, the prospective EU members in the Balkans who are already in NATO? Well, I mean, first, maybe just let me comment on the fact that this is a perfect illustration of the true you know, tectonic shift that Russia's illegal and brutal invasion of Ukraine has created. I think Putin, <laughs> uh, I think we can reasonably assume that Putin wanted less NATO, less unity, um, and all he's gotten is more NATO and more EU resolve um, on the defense front. 
So, so really, I, that has spectacularly backfired. And, you know, while we're on the topic of defense and EU-NATO cooperation, let's not forget that, um, you know, aside from Finland and Sweden, who are grabbing the headlines, um, Denmark, a few weeks ago, voted to scrap its long-time EU defense opt-out so it will actively take part in common security and defense policy with the, within the, EU, uh, the European Union um, institutions. Um, so on, on Finland and Sweden, I think, uh, you know, the political momentum for their accession is there. I, as we speak, more than half of uh, the allies have ratified the decision, um, although it is important to note that the biggest hurdle, potentially, which is Turkey's approval of the accession protocol still lies ahead. But I'm confident that um, we shouldn't expect uh, too much turbulence there. Um, both states uh, will bring two relatively small, but definitely advanced militaries into NATO um, and adding significant uh, 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 capabilities. They have you know, modern special forces, aircraft, including Finland, who's a member of the F-35 club, uh, Sweden's Navy, expertise in all things Arctic, cyber capabilities, you know, just some of the things that they will be uh, bringing along with them. And additionally, it's important to note that they will cement NATO's presence in the Baltic Sea, and Russia may well, very well become the only non-NATO Baltic state. So I think this shows, back to my, you know, introductory comment on the specific question, that things have definitely started to have shifted and it's no longer business as usual for those countries like ireland malta cyprus and austria who remain um, outside of nato things are also uh, changing um ireland uh, specifically um you know in mid-march uh, there was a poll that showed that uh, support for joining nato was at 48 percent with 39 percent opposed which was up from a similar poll in January, where only 34% supported joining the transatlantic alliance. So, you know, 14% increase, um, obviously very much a result of consequence of uh, Russia's invasion. For the other countries, uh, Cyprus, Austria, Malta, let's see. Um, I'm not confident, I'm not, you know, 100% sure that we will see a lot of movement there. As you know, there's the, uh, what I mentioned earlier, the political uh, the participation problem for Cyprus. Um, uh, Austria, Austria's Chancellor Karl Nehammer has recently reaffirmed that he doesn't intend to follow, you know, Sweden or Finland's cue. But as always, when a club loses members, um, you know, your ability to influence a conversation, to shape an agenda suffers. And, uh, you know, who knows what the future holds for these countries? Arthur, that was just a great breakdown. And I mean, not only do you outline sort of all of the advantages but did a bit, uh, that, you know, both Finland and Sweden are bringing, but you really contextualize it in a larger scope. And I mean, just top marks again for sort of identifying that when you, you leave, you have less influence. Before giving the sort of my two take on it with Austria, I mean, Savannah, what do you make of, you know, more NATO in the EU? Sure. Well, I mean, I think, Arthur, you put it best. And there was a you know recent Brookings article saying the same thing. I mean, this corrosive effect of, of the war has been the opposite intention you know this is this has caused an increase in cohesion or at least a, a you know a push for this uh you know further uh collaboration and so when we think of countries like ireland i mean i look back i was just in dublin recently and uh, you know meeting with the some colleagues at the ministry of foreign affairs and understanding you know this this pressure one um for a, a change and, and arthur you bring up a poll but i think you know maybe numbers aren't speaking but the the sentiments of just people who are not politically 
involved in, you know, foreign affairs or, you know, foreign policy in a typical sense, they have signs in, in storefronts, in taxis. I mean, this is something that has, uh, you know, really hit home for a country that is so neutral, you know, and, and having this history of the military neutrality. So I think it's a really Im- important note there to just see kind of the, the feeling in, in Ireland is, is um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sweeping change. And whether that results in a, in a change in, you know, NATO membership, obviously, is a different story. But I think just this idea of certainly um, the opposite effect that, that Putin would have been hoping for. So I think it's a, a really unique time um, for this NATO expansion that was um, honestly a way to organically expand NATO without any sort of pressure because of the uh, really horrors that people are seeing um, come out of Ukraine. Uh, what I will say, uh, just a continued thought there is also, you know, in, in terms of understanding just the, the pressure, um, I, I think it's important to note the Secretary General certainly said that NATO would not be pressuring, of course, this expansion or um, countries. But I think, you know, Ireland, uh, of course, the other countries, but Ireland in particular is a unique case study because of this military neutrality. And, and really being put to the test of whether they can maintain that or not. Um, and I, I think it's going to be a, a time will tell situation, but certainly, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on that conversation. And, and Roger, I really want to hear your take on this as well and kind of your thoughts on, on this, because I, I think it's an important topic that will no doubt continue uh, for years to come. Well, the real takeaway from the answer from everybody is just sort of that sentiment is changing and you really framed it excellently, Savannah, about sort of organically people are just reconsidering it. And, you know, just across the border of Vienna, Bratislava, only 45 minutes away, Austria has been neutral since 1955, you know, when uh, Leopold Figo delivered his famous Österreichs and Freis speech. But, you know, the way I see it, at least here in Austria, and uh, Arthur, thank you so much for bringing up those numbers on Ireland, is that Austria and, as you said, with Chancellor Nehammer, they're not rushing to the door for membership. But the, the idea that they're sort of at least having bigger conversations about what it means to be neutral and what that includes is, is devastating, you know, for somebody like Russia, um, who thought that, you know, Austria was in their pocket, they're very, they get the perception of being sympathetic. So the idea that people are just thinking about what it means, and they're thinking long term about maybe they need to reevaluate it is just been unbelievable for my take across the border in Austria to see how it is. And I think, as you said, Savannah, like the conversations like this, uh, whether they're in Dublin, Vienna, uh, or other the other places, like, I think they're going to continue moving forward. So a lot to unpack and maybe we do a bonus episode on it uh, in another place. Guys, we're unfortunately running out of time here on security hooligans. Uh, the gang needs to get going. Basically, here we go. Uh, you know, everybody knows the NATO Madrid summit has just concluded. There was the release of the new strategic concept. So Arthur, I'm talking to you right now, putting you on the hot seat. How do you think the EU can contribute to modernizing NATO? Well, I think, I think um, to be honest, we, we've already touched on some of those uh, uh, aspects. I think the EU um, as, a, as a supranational economic and political entity that is progressively waking up to this, uh, uh, you know, changing geopolitical landscape and has more ambition. And as Savannah was saying, is, you know, trying to put a, uh, the, the money where its mouth is in terms of defense capabilities. I think the EU has a positive contribution to make to NATO in, in areas where specifically NATO's remit doesn't allow it to go in terms of, uh, you know, again, legislation in domains like cybersecurity or the digital area arena um, with specific expertise in dealing with hybrid threats, for instance, which also require an expanded set of instruments beyond traditional hard power capabilities. Um, I think the EU uh, uh, is, 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 is definitely uh, um, a useful vehicle 
to support and complement NATO in many of those um, areas. And, um, and you know, I think uh, both the strategic concept and the strategic compass recognize the strengths and, uh, uh, let's say, I don't want to say weaknesses, but areas where the other is is maybe more wanting. And uh, again, I'm, uh, I think the talk of duplication and of rivalry is, is shouldn't uh, now drive the conversation. And it's really about making sure that unity um, is, you know, that we let go of this false dichotomy and uh, focus on uh, the momentous task ahead. Uh, Savannah, last uh, word on the content here about, you know, how the EU can contribute to modernizing NATO. Sure. Well, maybe I'm old school, but, you know, modernizing anything in the sense of, you know, new developing technology, that's a given, that's inevitable. But I think going back to the basics of uh, proper collaboration uh, and just what Arthur was saying of stripping away this rivalry and moving forward with enhanced commitment to one another, I, I think it's really going to be critical. And look, I think just to be really brief here, but th this war, you know, happening right now, I think has really exposed Europe's dependencies. Um, and again, this is opening up a whole can of worms that we could talk on probably for hours. But this, this, you know, this element of what is happening right now has really clearly exhibited something that I think is unsustainable, um, whether it be from, you know, a number of different topics, but this, this dependency. And I think that having a re restructure and refocus of leaning into NATO and the cooperation, obviously, not only with the EU, but also with the, you know, NATO ally, the US and, and seeing uh, across the pond where this refocusing of collaboration may be and that will inevitably lead to a strengthening of focus points on the modernization, um, being tactile, uh, you know, having, uh, I think, Arthur, you mentioned earlier, the grit is, is important, but I think, you know, you can't get anywhere uh, without that really strategic um, collaboration and cohesion. And I think that not only this uh, recent meeting with NATO and the EU, but also the, the strategic concept release and the summit um, was a way to tee up this, uh, what I would say is a, a new season, a, a refresher um, and a renewed commitment to tackle a lot of the problems that we have, but, uh, you know, hopefully the more dire ones, um, especially as we continue to follow what's happening in Ukraine. Well, on that note, I mean, I think the takeaway is that it's all a, a big nightmare for Putin and the civil wiki. So Arthur and Savannah, thank you so much for joining this uh, episode of Security Hooligans. For all of our listeners, we're going to be back uh, in a little bit traveling to Thessaloniki and to Brussels focusing on cybersecurity. So stay tuned for our next episode. But as we sign off here, guys, uh, Savannah, Arthur, you know, what are you guys streaming? What are you, you know, any travel plans? What are you reading? Uh, you know, inquiring minds want to know. So listen, this um, this summer, I'm planning on catching up on the, the Borg, on Borgen, the Danish political drama. I'm a big fan, and um, I'm really hoping to manage to squeeze uh, a, a bit of... Uh, of Netflix time in an otherwise quite busy schedule. Holidays are for later in August. <laughs> Great to hear, Arthur. You know, if you were listening to our, our last podcast episode, you all uh, heard me uh, admit shamefully that I've never seen a single Avengers film. I'm sorry to report I still haven't uh, working on that. So uh, thanks to you, Roger. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll squeeze in a, a film this weekend. Uh, well, those all sound like great plans. Uh, obviously, highly uh, recognized Borgen, uh, especially with it coming back after that delay. So don't, uh, no spoilers here, Arthur. But again, guys, thank you so much. Survive the heat. And uh, security hooligan fans will be back. Send us messages uh, how we're doing uh, and subscribe to us and have a great uh, day, everybody. Goodbye.